Turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms, to Psalm number 11. You'll find it on page 533 of your pew Bible, if you're using that. Psalm 11, this evening. Close to my heart, because it deals with anxiety, and we all struggle with that, don't we? Psalm number 11, page 533 of your pew Bible. A great musician, and I've grown up uh, with musicians in my home, and now I'm married to a musician. My best friend, ironically, all through grade school, was also a musician, a professional musician, so I've, I've known some. A great musician is one who can give voice to ideas, experiences, or emotions through their music. When Holst wrote... Mars, the bringer of war, you feel in the music the idea of war, don't you? When Handel wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, he captured in words and in music the glory of God. Or to go in a completely different direction, when Mick Jagger wrote and sang Satisfaction, a song filled with the frustration of never being satisfied with life. You listen and watch, and everything from the body language to the lyrics to the music communicates. The song became a huge hit because Jagger captured the restless immorality and dissatisfaction of the 60s and 70s. All these artists and many more have been popular because they could translate ideas, feelings, and experiences into music. At their heart, artists always want to express their life through their work. They want to capture something of life with all its beauty, complexity, and tragedy, and then they pass it on. They translate it to us. They want to grab something from the stream of their existence, grab something as it passes through them, and then sing, write, draw, paint, or picture it. Usually, although not always, doing this helps them cope with all they feel and see, and artists tend to feel and see more than the rest of us, and so they need to cope. We often forget that David was quite a musician himself. We tend to think of him as a king, a type of Christ, and a prophet, but he was also a musician and a magnificent artist. As such, David, like all other musicians and poets, sought to give voice to his experience, his faith, and his feelings. And most of the Psalms are just that. Although we often treat the Psalms as stale theological relics, they're actually songs and prayers. They seek to express life in its complexity, love, fear, faith, lust, guilt, and every other human experience in the context of faith and obedience to God. In this song, in this Psalm, David explores, through poetry and ultimately through music, originally at least, fear, anxiety, and faith. In doing that, he touches every one of us, if we're willing to listen. Everyone here is daily anxious. Everyone here struggles with fear and faith. Sure, things uh, for us may not look exactly like David. We'll see in a moment that he talks about an archer hiding in the dark. And that's unique to him as a king in the Middle East. But the feeling, the emotion is the same. 
I think this is especially important as we think about fear and, and anxiety, not just because it's such a common experience, but because fear and anxiety is behind so much of our sin, if we're being honest. Quite often, for example, our anger problem is actually driven by fear. We're afraid of failing financially, so we're furious when our spouse spends too much at the store. Our other sins are also quite often tied to fear, although it, not, it may not appear that way on the surface. For example, when a young adult in the church begins to date an unbeliever, we might assume that the primary problem is a lack of understanding. We may want to tell them about biblical separation, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. That's certainly true. But quite often we miss the deeper struggle going on in that person's heart. The real motivation for their sin is that they're afraid, afraid of being alone, afraid of failing at love, so they've chosen to lower their standards. Fear is the emperor of all maladies when it comes to the Christian life, and Psalm 11 is all about that struggle. So would you please stand? Let's hear now God's word as he speaks to us about this important topic through the artist and poet David. To the choir master of David, in the Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, may we, through the Lord Jesus Christ, behold your face tonight in the reading and teaching of your word. Reveal yourself in your glory and your beauty and in your utter holiness and righteousness to us, even as we come before you like birds full of fear and anxiety, jumping from one branch to the next in our anxieties. Bring us into the calm that comes when we view you in your glory your power, and your majesty. Do all this that Christ might be lifted up in our midst. And so we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing you can notice, the first thing you can notice right away is that this psalm divides into two sections. The ESV and other translations note this by putting a little break between verse 3 and verse 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can see that very clearly. So in verses 1 through 3, that's the first section, someone is advising David to be afraid. Maybe it's his own heart speaking, or maybe it's a fearful advisor, a friend. But then in verses 4 through 7, David responds with reassuring thoughts, 
God is still in his temple. There's reason for confidence even in the worst of times. But let's not jump on to the solution too quickly because we need to appreciate the power of anxiety as it is reflected to us in verses 1 through 3. Look again at those verses with me. David begins by saying, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? First of all, notice that someone is talking to David. Did you notice that? David says, he starts the psalm by saying, I trust the Lord. So how can you say to me, run, flee, hide? So who is saying this? It could have been a counselor. It could have been one of David's men who was afraid for him. Uh, This isn't provable. I admit that. But I like to imagine that this is actually David's own heart. It's his own internal conversation going on in his heart. As if in this psalm, he has sort of caught himself in the middle of being fearful. And he's now saying to himself through this psalm, after all God has done for you, David, how can you actually be doubting him right now? Well, whoever is saying this, his heart, the person who's speaking, their heart is well-meaning. It's a well-meaning counselor. We need to note that the person saying to David to flee cares for David. They're on his side. If it's his inner voice, his own heart, it's a voice of warning. It's a voice of self-preservation. If it's a royal counselor or a warrior ally, maybe even a spouse, they too want to preserve David's life. And right there, right there, you have the part of what makes anxiety such a tough sin to identify and defeat in your life. Unlike lust or anger, It is very difficult at times to recognize the voice of fear as an enemy. In fact, there are many people in our lives who unintentionally can reinforce our fears and very few people who will urge us to be courageous. Of course, the other issue, the issue we're all struggling with is that proper fear, proper fear can be wise. David did run from Absalom at the proper time, and he knew how to hide in a cave from Saul. There is a time for retreat and caution. So we need God's wisdom, his guidance to discern, to discern whether the person talking to us is speaking in sinful fear or simply in wise caution. Second, after we notice that someone's speaking here, listen to the beautiful way David captures the voice of fear that he's hearing, whether, again, it's his own heart or or, um, some kind of advisor. He describes it this way, flee as a bird to a mountain. That's how he captures it poetically. Now, what a perfect, timeless metaphor for fear. David here captures the essence of fear. It's the desire, isn't it, to escape, to escape, the desire to hide The desire to be safe. Birds uh, don't stay still for very long, do they? Not usually anyway. They move quickly from the slightest danger. It's a nervous animal. It's a vulnerable animal. Likewise, in David's day, you lived in the valleys where food grew. 
and you dwelt in cities that were usually in the valleys. But then when you were attacked by a larger foe, you would flee to the mountains as your last refuge. Armies have a hard time surviving and traversing mountains. It's a place of refuge for a startled bird. So this is a wonderfully vivid picture of what it is like to be human and to be afraid. We are like a bird bouncing about and seeking refuge, seeking a stable and safe life. Also, do you notice where this word of fear is spoken? David says, this is said in my soul. How can you say to my soul? Now think about that for a moment. He doesn't say that the voice is just one of many counselors he hears every day. No, this fearful voice is in his soul. It's speaking to him, we would say, speaking to his soul. David is saying that this voice of fear, whether it's coming from inside him or it's a counselor, it's speaking, it's speaking in the very heart of him. We hear others speak and we speak constantly, but there are words that cut down deep, that really get us and get down to the core of us. Fear is one of, if not the most powerful voice we contend with every day. So there is someone speaking. They have beautifully captured the heart of fear, and they're speaking this message into the very heart of David. This is not a voice you can just ignore. It has real, raw power, and it won't be shut down or shut up. But as raw as it is, Notice it is also not an irrational voice. This isn't a subconscious fear or just an irrational terror. This voice has reasons. And don't miss this. The reasons are good reasons. They are thought out reasons. This isn't the kind of fear that you feel when you go through a spooky ride at an amusement park. That's just child's play. All adults know that there are far scarier realities out there in adult life. These fears, the fears of Psalm 11, are reasoned, intelligent anxiety attacks. First, the voice says to him in his heart, there is an archer. You see that in verse 2. There's an archer. Archers, remember, can kill you from a distance. You never see it coming. There's just the whiz of sound, of air, and boom, it's over. David has faced wild animals. He's faced adults in combat. But at least in those situations, you have your weapons and you have your enemy firmly in front of you. But an archer can be lurking somewhere. It's an enemy you can't face that you don't see coming. So notice that David describes the archer in verse 2 as one who is concealed in a corner, or as the ESV has it here, one concealed in the dark. One of the things that makes anxiety so powerful in our lives is its what-if factor. Fear doesn't have to be about anything that's there. It can be about what might be there. To use David's language, it shoots from the dark. Fear is all about the unknown. Fear is all about that anxiety. What if I don't get that job? What if someone attacks me? What if my kids don't grow up to know the Lord and follow him? The unknown is a powerful source of anxiety. And like a bird, we want to run away. 
to somehow escape the uncertainty. And yet, no matter what we do, there will always be evil lurking in the shadows. There are always enemies in this life, and they often are working in the shadows of our life, if not in the shadows of our very own hearts. And so the voice of fear says, give up because the situation is hopeless. That's what's going on in verse 3. David says, or this voice says to him, what can the righteous do when even the foundations are destroyed? The foundations mentioned here point to some sense of order, structure, predictability. God says that he's in control, but human experience seems to suggest a world of disorder, chaos, violence, and chance. Seemingly random tragedies occur every day. What hope does a bird have in such a world? Well, it's a perfect picture, isn't it? Maybe it's almost too good a picture. It makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it's making you anxious just for me to go through these verses. I don't blame you. After all, this is what's going on inside of us when we're afraid. For years now, in personal conversations, I've used the illustration of a bull in a china shop. To translate to a younger audience, you may not know what that means, the picture is of a big bull that has somehow found his way into a shop that sells fine china, that is expensive plates and cups. In this analogy, our lives are very much like the shop. We try to have things lined up as neatly and as carefully as we can. We have insurance for that, a rainy day fund for this. There are days when the shop seems, looks, appears very secure. However, the reality is that the fine teacups are breakable. The shop is a good metaphor for our life because our lives can so easily be turned upside down and shaken out. Now imagine with me that into this tidy little shop of life strides a full-grown bull with his horns. He may be docile at times, but even docile, he can knock things over easily by just swishing his tail. The bull represents life in a fallen world. The bull is not fully predictable. We try to get rid of mayhem, the bull, but we really can't ever seem to get him out of the door again. Others of us don't try to remove mayhem anymore at all. We fully realize that he's not going to squeeze back through the door and go out, so we just hide under the table. Both of these approaches to fear, trying to wrestle it out of your life by perfect planning, or two, trying to hide in distractions, neither of these work. Those of us who try to manage everything perfectly will be constantly disappointed and terribly exhausted. Because in reality, we're trying to fight anxiety with more anxiety. The stress of living this way, of jumping on the horns of the bull and trying to wrestle him out of the shop, will leave us even more damaged and even more fearful. On the other hand, hiding under the table, losing yourself in food, medication, and entertainment, will also have its price. Those who try to run from fear often find themselves running from real life. The consequences to themselves and those around them can be devastating. To hide under the table is to shrink your life to that little spot under the table and to essentially abandon the shop altogether. These are the two ways we most often 
deal with anxiety, and they don't work, and more importantly, they don't glorify God. God does not want believers to cower in the corner and ignore their responsibilities to the world and to the community. But he is also not glorified by the Marthas, those who refuse to have time to sit at Jesus' feet because they're so busy working to remove all the disorder and danger from real life. Either way, either way, courage is missing. Life gets shrunk down, which is just another way of saying head for the hills. Now at this point, you might be saying, I see your point, pastor, but what other option do we have with the bull in the china shop? Well, there is another voice in the psalm. Let's hear God's answer through David. The voice of faith begins in verse 4, but in another sense, it really begins in verse 1 in the heading David gave, because at the very beginning of the psalm, he says, in the Lord, I take refuge. And then look at verses 4 and 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Introducing the psalm, the voice of faith says, the Lord is my refuge. Remember what we just said about the mountains being a hiding place in distress. Well, David is saying here that God himself serves as that for David. David, who, by the way, his life had more anxiety than yours or mine, found peace, found the peace he was looking for. He found the refuge you are looking for, but he didn't find it in one of his mountain fortresses. Rather, he found it in the person of God. Instead of running this way or that, he has learned to run to God. The rest and peace we are seeking from our fears will never come by simply ordering our lives perfectly. Now, again, this doesn't mean you shouldn't buy insurance or watch your kids at the park or study for your exam. You should do all those things, but not because you believe those things will save you from distress. Rather, you do those things because they're part of obedience and faithfulness. Taking precautions is more than fine. It's biblical. The Bible teaches that. However, we are not meant to get our security from those things. All you can do is face the bull and live with him in the china shop. The only way to live comfortably with a bull in your china shop is to believe, really believe, that the bull is, after all, God's bull. David is saying, I found peace in my dangerous life, standing in the midst of all this with God by my side. I lift up my eyes to his throne. I remember that he's on his throne and that he is also in the temple, the true temple in heaven. Now, I'm putting it that way. I think David has given us an important hint as to how we are to understand this confidence. In verses 1 through 3, he heard a voice of fear in his heart. But now in verses 4 through 7, I think it's very much moved to public worship, to a public worship experience. It was in worship, the worship we've had today, morning and evening, that David was reminded that God was on his throne and that God was in his holy temple. That's the place where David would have gone when he went to the temple when he would have been reminded very vividly of those realities. Remember, Psalm 11, 
was written for the chief choir master. That's the introduction. That's the introduction. It was written for corporate worship for moments like this. Public worship, like we're doing right now, in the Bible is not the only place you praise God. However, it is one of the great and primary places where you praise him. The Bible and really all Christians before us understood that personal praise was the echo of public worship. And that is what is happening here. He hears the voice of confidence in the assembly of God's people or in, the, in his presence in the temple. He writes this hymn so that the assembly, the congregation, will remember when they are anxious that God is on his throne and is in his holy temple. In Psalm 73, Asaph, uh, the composer of that psalm, is deeply anxious because he sees the wicked living good lives, something we see today too. His faith is failing because he sees God's people struggling with illness and poverty, and he sees wicked people seeming to be healthy, strong, beautiful, going from strength to strength. He wrote Psalm 73 about that anxiety and that struggle. Here's what he said. But as for me, he writes, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is Asaph saying? I think Asaph was hearing the voice of fear. He was saying the same thing David is saying here in verse 3. The foundations are being destroyed. In other words, there's no order to life, no rules, no one at the controls. But then... Asaph hears the voice of faith. And here's what he said in verse 17 of that psalm. He said, I felt this way, I felt this way until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. In other words, he forgot who God was for a moment, but public worship saved him. It brought him back. God may for a time allow wicked people to prosper, but then Asaph remembered in the context of worship what the future looks like for those people, and he shuddered. Yes, better to have this cancer, this illness, this financial problem, so much better than to have their end, their end, their cup, their judgment without Christ. The voice of faith in the face of fear is never clearer or more potent for us than when we're in worship together. That is why worship is so central to the life of our church and to our work as pastors. So David has found the peace he was looking for, but not in sticking his head in the sand, binging on YouTube and hoping it will all go away. Nor has he found peace in being extremely productive or in trying to think of everything and control everything. He found it by looking at God, especially in the context of worship. The second thing I want you to notice about this voice of faith is that it, like the voice of fear, has reasons, two of them, two perspectives that brought him back from paralyzing anxiety. He saw God, first of all, in the temple and then also on his throne, now, those are not throwaway lines. First, we are to rest. He was able to rest because he believed that God was in his holy temple. 
This means that God is with us, near us, aware of our struggles, absolutely present. The temple was for Israel the symbol of Emmanuel, God with us. A real quick review, bear with me. God, you'll remember, followed Israel in the desert. They come up out of Egypt. He follows them in a fiery cloud. That fiery cloud proved that he was near them, especially in their weakness and vulnerability and distress. He was their protector. That fiery cloud presence descended later on in their life into the tabernacle, and then eventually it resided in the temple. Now that temple in which this smoky presence had entered in the days of, later in the days of Solomon. The beginnings of that, the tabernacle, sit right beside David's throne and his palace. So David is saying, God is right there. I can be confident because his presence is with me. And he's promised that, being that by being present in the temple, or in David's case, the tabernacle. The temple was the sacramental presence of God with his people, granting them daily assurance that he was with them in their trials and their anxieties. But today you have something even better. The presence of God in fire descended on the New Testament church at the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire on the heads above the heads of men and women. God is in his holy temple and your body, if you're a believer, is the temple of the holy God. Yes, God is also in the ultimate temple, the temple in heaven, the one Jesus entered that Hebrews talks about and made sacrifice for our sins. And that is certainly David's point here. But he is also tabernacled with us. We have even better reasons than Israel to believe that God is with us, hears us, knows us, and knows our fears. God is in his temple. He's in me. He's in you. Emmanuel, God with us. Second, the Lord is also on his throne. The idea here is that no matter how much the earth may be shaking, no matter how much the foundations may be shaking, God is not moved. He's not toppled by what's going on in our lives or our world. He will be there and he will reign over everything he allows into our lives. The foundations may seem to shake as if evil has become good and good has become evil, but that cannot be because the order of good and evil is upheld by the Lord on his throne. And so David can write verse 6, upon the wicked he will, one day or the other, rain coals, fire and brimstone, a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Now, at first glance, it may be hard for us to understand those verses. Why was David so comforted by God's judgment of the wicked? It, it seems maybe a little ugly or cruel for David to rejoice so much in God's justice. Why is God's justice so comforting? Well, the reason is simple. David, although not perfect, is a righteous man. And what he is expressing is his confidence that God will, because of who he is on his throne, eventually vindicate the righteous. Now, please remember that when David calls himself righteous, as he does here, he does not mean by that perfect. 
doesn't translate well in English. He means that he's a man genuinely seeking to live honestly before God and is being attacked by the wicked in the process. David is certain that in the end, God will do justice. And this is such a comfort for us. Sometimes people hurt us terribly. Sometimes people abuse, malign, and even attack us. Or they do horrible acts of violence in our world. When this happens, when we read the news, and this happened to me last night, it feels like the foundations are being shaken or that there's really no foundations at all. Where is God? Why isn't he defending us? Why isn't he protecting the weak? David is assured that because of God, who God is, and because he is on his throne, he will ultimately do justice. And so his fears are allayed. Yet once again, I believe we can take these words as New Testament believers even further. Jesus is the Davidic king of righteousness. God will uphold his throne against all attacks The judgment described here is not a judgment that you or I do. This is not a moment for our ego or our hubris. This is a judgment that will come ultimately to vindicate Jesus Christ and to bring judgment on those who've hated him and oppressed him and his people. As the Messiah, the anointed of his age, David was confident as God's king that his righteous cause would be upheld. David had God's promise God said to David on the day of his coronation, Today, David, you are my son. How much more so is this true for God's one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ? We can rest today knowing that God's throne is not toppled and Jesus' kingdom will not be removed. Bad things can and will happen, but it is this vision of Christ on his throne that will calm our hearts. As loud and real as the voice of fear is, there is a stronger voice in this psalm. It's a voice that is born out of a theological vision. God on his throne, God in his temple, all is ultimately right with the world. All will be right with the world. It can rock and it can reel, but as long as God sits there, I am his and he is mine. But it's not easy. That's why this psalm is there. Things are shaken. Things come undone. The earth reels. It shudders under the weight of sin and curse. But when it does, here is a vision that alone can sustain. The late David Pallison of CCEF in Philly said it, and I have never heard anything better nor can I improve on it in any way. Dr. Pallison said of fear, we have good reasons to be afraid, but we have better reasons not to be. I don't know if Pallison was thinking of this psalm, but he could have been, because that is exactly what we have here. We have reasons to be afraid. David never says the reasons are invalid. The foundations of the earth, the structure of human's existence, they shake. We talk about bad things happening to us, and sometimes we say to each other, my world fell apart, my world was turned upside down, it was like the room was spinning. Likewise, you can pretend like there's no evil out there, but there is. 
And you can't protect yourself and your loved ones, no matter how hard you try. The archer is there, and he's often in the shadows. Truth is, we have no idea the kinds of heartbreaking hardship that might be right around the corner for me or for you. Bottom line, the voice of fear is somewhat right about our world. It is a scary place to live in many ways. And again, to deny that or to ignore it or to cover it up with drugs, alcohol, or entertainment, none of those things can silence fear because at the end of the day, we do live in an evil world and we know it. The Bible's answer, though, is not to dismiss fear's reasons but rather to turn your eyes upward and give you bigger reasons for courage. Fighting fear in your heart is all about doing what David does here. You take those good reasons to be afraid and you overcome them with better reasons not to be afraid. Let me give you a picture that has always been helpful to me in my own struggles with fear. In the book of Exodus, Moses' first miracle before Pharaoh, you can imagine he's nervous. This is his first big public moment. It seems like his first miracle backfires. Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. But then the magicians come and they throw down their rods and they become snakes as well. At that point, it seems that God and Pharaoh are pretty evenly matched. God has his snake And Pharaoh has his snakes. God has his champion, Moses, and Pharaoh has his priests. Fear and faith, hope and despair seem evenly matched, equal powers vying for our world and for our lives. But then what happens? Moses' snake eats and devours the others. Now the point is this. Pharaoh's snakes were real. Those priests had real demonic power. Pharaoh's power was real, but not as real, not as powerful as God. As you face fear and anxiety this week, please know that it is real. I can't deny that, and you shouldn't pretend otherwise. But let the greater truth of God swallow your fears alive. God is in his holy temple. That's you. God is on his holy throne. Yes, you have good reasons to be afraid but you have better reasons not to be. For we are persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know all the anxieties of our hearts, how like birds uh, we flit around every day. Some of us have even been overwhelmed by anxiety this week, unable to function, maybe not even wanting to come here uh, tonight, uh, choosing rather to bury ourselves in distraction or despair. Lift our eyes up to your throne in heaven and give us through scripture a renewed vision of your majesty and of your Messiah who reigns and rules and whose throne cannot be toppled. This week, swallow up our very real fears with greater truths, for we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.